You're listening to Sermons at High Peak. You know, I uh, saw a little cartoon in a Christian magazine, and uh, at the front of a very large sanctuary with almost nobody in it uh, was a pastor. He was standing there, and uh, the caption at the bottom of the cartoon said, God calls us to evangelism, (laughs) and the bank that holds our mortgage mentioned it too. (laughs) When you think about that, you know, there are churches all over the country standing very empty today. Far more empty than they used to be. Uh, We have seen this. It's sad to see. It's difficult for us as Christians to see. But when you think about the most important thing for Christians to do, uh, you look at the list and you'd say, you know, worshiping God, that's probably number one. Where our job is to worship Him, to honor Him. Uh, Praying is a part of that. And then serving one another in love, caring for each other's physical needs and present needs, emotional needs. And then we also have to put teaching God's word. Jesus said, go and make disciples and teach them of all, teach people of all nations. But you know, one of the most important things that we have to do that's on that list is telling people about Jesus Christ. Am I right? We're here to tell the old, old story of what Jesus has done for us, to share that message. You know, we are a part of a denomination. If you don't know it, we're part of what's called the Southern Baptist Convention. And you know, the Southern Baptist Convention has been preaching this message almost from its very beginning. We began out of a controversy over sending missionaries, in fact. And that's been the heart and the soul of our denomination for more than 170, 185 years now, something like that. And so it's our job to go. A little boy came home from his church. And his mother, on the way home, asked him, so what did you learn about in Sunday school today? And he said, well, we we learned about the goats that, uh, you know, that were there with Jesus when he was born. And she said, goats? I don't remember hearing that much about goats. You mean the animals that were you know, with him in the, uh, in the manger? No, 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 the goats. Yeah, the teacher said the goats that, that were there. You know, goats tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, right? I think too many of us as Christians are waiting for the goats to go tell it on the mountain. After all, if it's our job and we're supposed to be doing it, why aren't we? Why aren't churches filling up with the lost from the people that we've gone to and shared the gospel message with? A lot of people think it's the job of somebody else. (laughs) Maybe not goats. Uh, It's the pastor's job. We pay him to go and tell. Or, you know, those Sunday school teachers, they know more about it. They can teach the lesson. So they should be the one to tell. Uh, You know, we we elected deacons. They're better at it. And the Bible says deacons are supposed to go and tell. After all, the first deacons, that's who they were. Evangelists like Stephen and Philip. You know, before COVID... The estimates said that 80 to 90% of all churches in America were either declining or staying the same size. Most of them declining. Back in uh, 2000, they said that about 70% of Americans 
called themselves church members and they said that they would go to church on a regular basis. I don't know what regular was, whether it was once a month or once a week or less than once a month, but that's what they said. But you know that there was a study done uh, last year during COVID that said that less than 50% participated in church in any way. So just in 20 years, it went from above 70 to below 50. Below 50 for the first time in our nation's history since they started being able to keep record of it. Will it ever go back to what it was before COVID? I don't know. But we can't just assume that everyone's coming back. And we have to do our part. It's time to get the goats out and go tell it on the mountain. And we're the goats. Because it's getting bad out there. <laughs> we need to tell the message. It's our job. It's our job. So why isn't it happening? Why aren't people going? Why aren't Christians just naturally telling? You know, there's been sermon after sermon, and I've preached them, about why that is. But I am absolutely, fundamentally certain that it's because of one reason. We're not following what the scripture says. And I'm not talking about the Great Commission where it says to go. I'm talking about the passage right after the one we just watched. The story that we just saw, Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman, sharing with her and talking with her, a woman she never should have, he never would have normally talked to in that culture. He was a Jew, she was a Samaritan, they hated each other. He was a man who was a rabbi, he wasn't supposed to speak to women that he wasn't married to. Well, he wasn't married. That was out of the ordinary and totally unheard of, and yet he crossed that cultural boundary in order to speak and tell her the truth. He loved her and wanted her to know. And so she went and just told what she knew. And we find this story, look at it with me in, Luke, in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. We're going to start there. This is Matthew's account of what happened probably after that. The story you saw comes from the book of John. But you know, we put the Gospels together to get the complete story. But I wanted to read it from Matthew because of what he says in this passage that's so important for us today. In verse 35, it says this, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease, every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. I think when we read that passage, we understand that Jesus is a perfect example. If I wanted to, I could preach a message on that. There's three points here. but let me, I won't do that, but let me just share what I see here. Number one, Jesus was going, and we're supposed to be going. He's the perfect example. It says he was going throughout all the towns and villages. You and I are supposed to be going everywhere we go. Secondly, Jesus was teaching and preaching the good news. We are supposed to be doing what he did to teach and preach the good news. 
And it says Jesus was caring for the sick people and healing them. You and I maybe don't have the power of the uh, ability to heal, but we can meet needs by caring for people, by just loving the people Jesus loves. He's the perfect example. He was going, he was teaching, and he was caring. But as we look at that, Jesus had something that motivated him. And that's what I want us to focus on. Number one, Jesus had a cause. Look at verse 27, or I'll just read it to you. It'll be on the screen, John 12, 27. It says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but that is why I came to this hour. Jesus was praying and he was saying, Lord, save me from this hour. What was the hour that he was talking about? It was this time, this moment that he would come and he would die for the sins of the world. He knew that he was going to have to suffer both physically, but I think even more importantly, spiritually and emotionally, as all the sins of the world came upon him in that moment. He didn't want to do it, but he was willing because that's why his, he came. He had a cause. He had a purpose. He came in order to see, seek and to save those who are lost. In other words, he came to go, to preach, to show his love to people, and he came with a cause of doing it, and he could not let that thing go. That cause was his most important. And so again, when we look again in Matthew, our passage here in verse 35, Jesus continuing, continued going around all the villages, all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogue, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. How do we share the message? Well, you got to go. You're not going to be able to share a message with lost people unless you go and find some lost people. Where do you find lost people? They're everywhere. They're all over the place. Some of them are in our own homes or maybe next door in our neighbor homes. Uh, they're at work, wherever you are going to work tomorrow or maybe some of you have to go today. I don't know. Wherever you go, there are people who are lost. They're everywhere. But you have to go and you have to go with an intention of finding them. It's not just living your life. You have to go with this understanding, hey, today I want to find someone to share this message with. So go with an intentionality. And so you have to go and you also have to speak. You have to tell someone about it. One of the most dangerous ideas that has hit the church, I don't know how long it's been around, but it's been around my lifetime. People say, well, you know, I'm not really a... Uh, I'm not really a, a, an evangelist, you know, like a spoken word evangelist. I, I more like let my lifestyle speak for me. Well, I got news for you, folks. None of us are that good of people. <laughs> you and I aren't that good. That we walk around and people look at us and go, oh my goodness, Kevin is such an amazing guy. I got to find out why. On rare occasion, you might have someone to approach you when you're really kind or really nice. And they might say that to you. But you know what? That's rare, isn't it? How many of us have had somebody come to us and ask about our spiritual beliefs because of how decent we are? You might be a good person when you compare yourself to other people, but very few of us are so amazing that people want to know about our spiritual beliefs as a result. Now, it's a good idea to have good behavior to back up the good words that you share. And Jesus did that perfectly. He went, he spoke, and he cared for people. But you and I are going to have to approach the subject, and we are going to be the ones to bring it up. We can't just sit around and wait for someone else to come and tell us that they want to know about our spiritual beliefs. 
And so we're going to have to go and we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to be the people who go and who teach and who love like Jesus did. We are going to have to follow the cause of Jesus. And that's why he came. And after all, that's why you and I are still here. I've said this many times. I believe that if we weren't supposed to be a part of evangelism, that just moments after we got saved, he'd take us to heaven. We'd be like God and Enoch. Remember the story of Enoch in the Old Testament? You had literal, very little said about him, but it just said that God and Enoch were so close that they were walking together, and one day, it's almost as if God said, you know what, we're so close to my house, let's just go there. Because Enoch went to heaven. He didn't even die. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Enoch must have been a pretty great guy. We don't see too many stories before Jesus of God coming to this earth and spending time with people. But he did in physical human form. And he walked with Enoch. And Enoch just went on to heaven. The truth is, though, we have a cause. We've been left behind for a reason. And yes, it's to worship. Yes, it's to pray. Yes, it's to teach one another Helping disciple fellow believers. Yes, it's the care about the needs of the people in our church and outside our church. But fundamentally, the most important thing you and I are here to do, and that is to go and tell the message. And so look at verse 36. We're supposed to go teach and care. And also it says in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like a shepherd without, like a sheep without shepherd. Jesus had compassion. That's part of that caring part that we just talked about. What's the situation of these people? It says, number one, it says that they were distressed. You ever get distressed? Yeah, you might get distressed because of your circumstances, because of the difficulty of your job, or because of some crisis in your life that you're worried about. But why were these people distressed? They were distressed because of the oppression of their religious leaders. Jesus saw that. The word here, uh, distress, it's kind of a gruesome word picture. It literally means that they were being skinned like a fish. Now, it's a metaphor, but imagine what it would feel like to be skinned alive. <laughs> That's kind of what Jesus was saying. They're so upset that they feel like they're being skinned alive by their own religious leaders. In Sunday school, Linda so beautifully taught about how the, the uh, religious leaders were so uh, dangerous that they were actually rejecting the people and Jesus used that circumstance to teach how they were going to kill him in the parable of the talents. He's saying that these people are so distressed because of the situation they live in. Their religious leaders are more interested in themselves than in the people that they serve and the God whom they are supposed to be worshiping. And that caused distress in their life. It also said they were dejected. That idea of being dejected is also the idea of being hopeless. How many of you feel dejected? You just want to give up. You just say, it's just not worth it anymore. It's an idea of, of saying, it's all for nothing and I'm just going to run away. Sadly, a lot of people feel that way. I've had people in my own life who I looked up to as what I thought good examples of a Christian walk, only to find out that they allowed themselves to become so dejected, so hopeless, that they gave up on their faith and walked away from the Lord. It's like throwing the most valuable thing you have out in the trash. 
And that's what they did. And Jesus saw that. He saw these people. They were distressed and dejected. He felt like, they felt like they were being skinned by their own leaders because they had such oppressive nature of legalistic religion in their lives. You see, the law is a good thing because it's supposed to teach us about God. It's supposed to teach us about the best way to live our lives. And so when you look at the Old Testament thought law, the things like the Ten Commandments, they're not meant to be oppressive. They're not meant to, to weigh us down and make our lives miserable. They're instead meant to help us avoid the sin that so commonly ensnares people, it traps people. The law is freedom from those things. But the religious leaders of their day, and I dare say sometimes religious leaders in our day and church people in our day, make the rules of the faith what's most important instead of the relationship of the faith. And when you have more emphasis on rules over relationship, you end up with legalism, and that is a trapped feeling. I have a, a fellow pastor friend and his wife, and Barb and I uh, were with them on a retreat, and he talked about how they used to be in a legalistic uh, religious experience. And he, they talked about how miserable it made them feel. It was all about the rules and not about the relationship. And they got out of it, and it was like they were reborn almost. The law becomes a prison. God never intended that to happen. Now, there's some pretty weird rules out there that people follow. Have you heard any of these strange rules that they've kept on the books? For example, young girls are never allowed to walk on a tightrope in Wheeler, Mississippi, unless it's in a church. Where would we put a tightrope in our church to have young girls walk on? I, that's strange to me. Anyway, in Blackwater, Kentucky, tickling a woman under her chin with a feather duster while she's in church it carries a penalty of $10 and one day in jail. So everybody keep your feather dusters put away because we're going to start collecting that. I don't know. We'll put it towards missions maybe. I, no one can eat unshelled roasted peanuts while attending church in Idaho, Oregon. I didn't even know there was an Idaho organ, but I'm not going to eat shelled, unshelled peanuts there, that's for sure. Uh, in Honey Creek, Iowa, no one is permitted to carry a slingshot to church, except a policeman. Policeman, you can carry slingshots to church all you want in that town. Uh, swinging a yo-yo in church or anywhere in public on the Sabbath is prohibited in Studley, Virginia. I wonder if they considered the Sabbath sundown Friday to... No, it don't know what that is. Anyway, it, turtles, turtle races are not permitted within 100 yards of a local church at any time in Slaughter, Louisiana. I don't know why you can't have turtle races near the church. I think we maybe ought to have a turtle race in church sometime. That would be fun, wouldn't it? No, maybe not. These are all pretty strange laws. But I want you to know something. The legalism of the faith, when we make it about the laws, the world thinks our rules are just as ridiculous. Sadly, they think any morality is just as ridiculous. But when we make it all about the law and not about the Lord, then we have a problem and people look down on us. We have to understand this. We have to have compassion on people. When I see someone living in sin, my first thought is not let's destroy them, tear them down and make them feel bad about their sin. My first thought is woe is them. And woe is me, because I've got a different breed of sin, but I'm too a sinner. But I'm just thankful I learned the lesson that Jesus forgives sin. 
And when we see people living a sinful lifestyle, that ought to be our goal, to lovingly redeem them back to God with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to draw them back in. Legalism, however, is rampant in the church and it's destroying our witness and our faith. And it's making our fellow believers feel so oppressed that they want to give up and quit. It shouldn't be about the legalism. Does that mean we don't uh, keep the standards in our church? No, we have to keep standards. But we do so as a goal of loving them back into righteousness, not tearing them down and making them feel bad about themselves. And so we see the third thing. He had a cause and he had compassion. And the third thing Jesus had that led him is in verse 37, where he had a command. In verse 37, it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Jesus had a cause. What was his cause? To seek and to save those who are lost. We have the same cause. When Jesus saw these people who were lost, he had compassion for them. He loved them. And he wanted to see them saved. And he wants us to have the same compassion, the same heart of love for the lost of our world. And so now he's got a command. Here's what I want you to do about it. You've got the cause that I have. You have the compassion that I have. So what do you do? Did he then say go? No, he saved that for later on. The message to go and make disciples comes much later. Nope. We're in Matthew 9. That command came in Matthew 28. What's his command here? Pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord. For what? For workers to go out into the harvest. You see, he had a commission before the Great Commission. And that commission was to pray first. To pray first. Pray that the cause will be met. Pray that you will have compassion for the people he has compassion. And when you put those two together, you follow the command to pray first before we go. John tells us of the context, and we saw that video a moment ago about the Samaritan woman at the well. And you know the story, you saw it. This woman comes out probably at that time of day because she didn't want to be there when the other women would come because she was embarrassed about who she was. Jesus said, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and you're living with the man that you're with now. That's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And so she was embarrassed. But did that mean he wouldn't talk to her because of it? He wouldn't care about her because of it? No, he loved her. And he did talk to her in spite of all of the things that people say. And so that story is one in which Jesus shows us what we are to do. To go and to love people back into the faith if they've left it. Or to love them into it to begin with. By telling people. And if we want more people to go, we have a command to pray for it. To pray about it. Right now there are 330 million Americans by best estimates. Uh, at least for a year ago, that was the estimate. About 40% of them call themselves Protestant Christians. What's well, a Protestant Christian? It just means they're not part of the Catholic Church. Why do I separate that? Because we are Protestants. And we believe that uh, salvation is through your own personal faith, not through being baptized as an infant into uh, tradition, but rather that you as a, a, an older person, someone who's able to know right from wrong, makes a decision, hey, I've done wrong, 
and I need Jesus to make it right. I need him to forgive me. And so you've prayed, dear Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. Thank you for dying for me. I believe in you, that you died and you rose again and you're alive today. And so I'm asking you to please forgive me and I promise that I will live my life for you for the rest of my days as long as I'm able. Thank you for saving me and giving me a hope of heaven one day. Now, have you ever prayed that prayer? Think about it. And if you did, were you sincere? Did you really mean it? Or were you doing it because your mom and dad told you to because you were a little kid? Or your Sunday school teacher? Or did you do it because you had a friend who they got saved at vacation Bible school and you wanted to be like your friend, so you went forward and they told you to say these words? None of that's good enough. It has to be in your heart, sincere and real. Did you do so? So we see that 40% are Protestant. Well, I dare say, you know what is included in that group of Protestants? People who do not believe the Bible the way you and I believe it. A large group of them says the Bible is filled with mistakes and errors. And so we have to decide which parts of the Bible are worthy of our belief. Well, that's ridiculous. How do I know which one's right and wrong? If God loved us, wouldn't he give us a Bible that's filled with truth and not mixed with all kinds of errors? That's why we believe in what's called the inerrancy of Scripture because we believe in his love and in his power. He created this word by speaking it through the words and through the pens of authors from generations over hundreds of years and in different cultures, but he put it all together and it's consistent. That by itself is a miracle. After all, if you get four people in a room, you're going to have seven opinions about what to do, right? But in this case, there are uh, dozens of authors over hundreds of years, separated by thousands of miles, and they all agree that Jesus is Lord and that salvation is, in grace, is by grace through him. But there's so many liberal uh, theologians in these other Protestant denominations who don't believe that. And as a result, what we're seeing is they don't really believe in salvation anymore. Many of them say, well, you know, as long as you just have this idea of a higher power. So the Buddhists, they're probably going to be in heaven. I don't have anything against Buddhists except that they don't honor Jesus Christ as Lord. And I wish they would. And if I meet one, I'd love to tell them about it. And of all different faiths, even some who started as Southern Baptists, some of whom who are even now a part of our Southern Baptists, but they also are part of another group called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, or CBF, they believe that you can ordain homosexuals as ministers. That's not in the Bible. It's contradictory to Scripture, but they think, well, I can pick and choose what's right and wrong. And so when I say there's 40% Protestant, what does that mean? How many of them are really saved, who really seriously take the word of God serious and follow Jesus Christ as the only way, like he himself said in John 14, 6? I don't know. But someone once estimated that maybe one-third of Bible-believing, conservative Protestant churches are saved. One-third. We've got about 75 to 80 people here. I don't know what the exact number is. Some of you came in after I counted. What does that mean? What's one-third of that? Oh, about 20-something? If that's true for our church, there might only be 20 Christians in this room. I hope that's not true. And I've watched your lifestyles, and I don't think it's true. 
But I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are a handful, if not more, who've never sincerely put your trust in Jesus Christ. And if that's you, today's the day to get it set, to get it taken care of. So we need people to go. And the command eventually will be in the gospel in, verse, in chapter 28 to go and make disciples. But before we ever go, we need to pray. Lord, send out workers. When I pray for lost people, I pray that God will touch their heart and they'll get saved. But I also pray, if I'm remembering to, I almost always try to pray. And Lord, put someone in their pathway that they will listen to. I'm essentially saying, Lord, send a person to harvest my father-in-law, my friend, my neighbor. Send someone into their life that they will listen to and that that person will share the message. It's so important. I remember a number of years ago, Barb and I went to the Southern Baptist Convention in New Orleans and we heard Dr. Fred Luter. He was the first black president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And man, can he preach. He's a great preacher, by the way. But he was also a great evangelist in that city. He didn't plant his church once, but twice. He planted it once and it grew and flourished so that he was known throughout our convention as a, a great pastor and preacher. But then Katrina hit and just about destroyed his church. So he replanted it and did it all over again. It was amazing to see him and to hear him preach. And uh, we went to that convention. And I remember on the way there, we were flying out of Greensboro and we flew over Indiana to Chicago. And I saw on the land below us hundreds and hundreds and thousands of acres of fields. Because Indiana, it's one of the parts of the breadbasket to the country and the world, you know. The Midwest is in this nation. But at, at that time of year, it was June, so they weren't quite ready for harvest. But I looked at that and I just kind of, I don't know, remembered that so that when we went to the convention, and when you go to these conventions, it's all about evangelism and missions. They, that's what they talk about. And so every time we heard someone speak, it was about that and, and about harvesting lost souls for Jesus Christ. And I thought about those fields, how huge that is, how, what, what a monumental task it must be to harvest all those crops in just that one state. We didn't fly over a lot of states. I just remember looking down over Indiana and seeing that. You see, we live in a nation. It's one of the largest in the world. They are bigger, but it's large. It's also the, one of the most Christian nations in the world. And yet, as we just said, maybe 20% of us are truly sincere about our faith in Jesus Christ. So if you extrapolate that to the world population, I don't know what that means, but we're close to 7 billion people, maybe more than that now. What percentage of them are sincere in their faith? If America is one of the most Christian nations and only about 20% are sincere in our faith, what does that mean? I tell you, we need harvesters all over the world. So it's time to start following the command to pray that people will start going. We need to make this a matter of sincere earnest, important prayer. Make it a high priority in your prayer life. If you are a person who prays every day, please add this to the list. Pray, Lord, send out people into the harvest fields to bring them home to faith. I have a fear, and that is that Christians don't really care that much about evangelism. 
They say there's two things you should never talk about, religion and politics. I don't agree with that at all. First of all, I'm willing to talk politics, but less likely, because, you know, that's not fun anymore. <laughs> we don't like to talk politics, so I don't need to talk about politics that much. But our culture likes to talk about spiritual things. They say don't talk about religion and politics. Uh, that's not true. Spirituality is huge in our culture. Just look at uh, popular culture today. There is a lot of spirituality involved in it. The problem is that none of it is Christian and none of it is biblical, or at least very little of it is. But people like to talk about these things. That's the lie. Oh, people don't want to hear about that. Yes, they do. They want to talk about it. And so ask them about their spiritual thing. What do you believe about spirituality? What are your spiritual beliefs? And you'll hear all kinds of wild stuff if you do this. I've done this. This is part of been my practice for evangelism. I try to get to the gospel and I say, well, what, do you, what are your spiritual beliefs? What do you believe about spiritual things? And you hear all kinds of strange stuff. Now, a lot of people in our area are already, you know, they're, they're Christian light. You know, they've been exposed to Christian. Oh, you know, I believe in God and I pray every night. Do you really? I wonder if they really do. But they say, I pray every night. Well, I think if they spent a lot of time praying to God, they'd probably hear from him who says, you know, you should go to church because it's in his word. But they don't. The fact is, though, people do want to talk about this. And so it's important for us to be willing to go. But until we have more people going, we need to pray like Jesus commanded. Once was a farmer. He had hundreds of acres. And so he hired 100 people to work in his fields, and he trained them and prepared them to be his harvesters for that season. He told them what their job was. He told them how to do their job. He even showed them exactly how to do it. At the end of the day, he left, went away for a while. And when he came back, he found something strange. It seemed like there were only about two or three of them actually doing any harvesting. A few of them had started, but they gave up because it was hard. Sun was hot, so they sat under a tree. One of the groups sat under a tree and they argued over what were the best ways to harvest the grain. They weren't doing any, but they just argued about it. Another group, instead of picking the grain, they decided to build a huge barn. Oh, there's going to be a, need a place for all this grain. Let's build a barn. So they, they weren't told to do this, but they did. They built this great, big, beautiful barn, made it look beautiful. The problem is they started to argue over the colors to paint it, and what sort of wood to put around the doorway as trim. And, and so they divided and then ended up with two barns. <laughs> it was crazy. And so then another group split into groups and they started saying, you know what we need? We need some people to teach these folks better how to harvest. And so they started coming up with ways to teach it. They didn't do any harvesting. One of them had harvested at the beginning, so that made him feel like he was an expert. So he started bringing, here's how I harvested my seven pieces of grain. That's nothing, right? <laughs> but he became the expert, and so everybody went to him to hear about how to harvest grain. But they never actually harvested any grain. One of the grain pickers picked a whole bushel, and then he started showing it off. Look at my bushel of grain. Look at this. This is amazing. And meanwhile, all the grain, most of the grain, sat out in the fields, and over weeks and time, it started to die. So that when the farmer came back expecting to see it all harvested, he found most of it was dead. 
But they were all so proud of themselves. They showed them his barn, their barns. They showed them the one or two bushels of grain that they had harvested. They showed them their plans for how to harvest grain. And only a few of them were actually harvesting grain. And after looking that over, and he saw that, he said, this is incredible. What are you people doing? And they all started fighting about how theirs was the best thing to do. And he said, shut up and quit fighting, fighting and just go back and pick. Just go pick. I think that sounds very familiar. That parable sounds exactly what evangelism is like in the modern American church. We talk about selling, telling people about Jesus. We build big buildings that are beautiful so that we can house them. And we don't go and we don't preach the gospel. We desperately need people. And so Jesus had the answer in verse 38. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. I once heard a sermon by our denomination's former president, Dr. Fred Luter, that I told you about just a moment ago. And uh, it was an amazing message. And at the end of the message, he had us so fired up that we stood up and gave him a standing ovation. And you've maybe heard people give standing ovations for concerts or, you know, for uh, uh, plays. You maybe have even heard it for a Christmas play. I don't know. But, you know, you don't get an awful lot of standing ovations for preaching. But I've seen it happen more than once, not just Fred Luter. But here's what was amazing about his message on going out into the fields and harvesting people. He presented it in such a wonderful, glorious, God-honoring way that we stood and applauded for minutes. And he didn't just get a standing ovation. He came back and gave a little bit more of his message. He came back and he shared a little bit more. He didn't just receive a, a standing ovation. He just kept on going and preaching. And we sat and listened to him for 10 more minutes. And boy, did he preach. He shared this thing about who Jesus is, alphabet from A to Z. And it was amazing to hear. And that inspired me. And I said, Lord, on the way home, I hope you give me a chance to share the gospel with somebody before I get back to our home in North Carolina. So we jumped on our plane and I sat down next to a person and... Uh, I was next to a woman. Barb was on this side and she was on that side and I sat there and she had kind of tears in her eyes and I thought, oh man, this girl's having a hard time. Maybe this is the perfect opportunity. And so I was kind of geared up and ready to go and got myself situated and I was ready to turn and start trying to talk to her about Jesus and she did this. <laughs> and I thought, well, I don't want to wake her up and tell her about Jesus. She'd just hate Christians. So I just let it go. And I was so disappointed. I was, man, I, I was so ready to share the gospel. So we got off the plane. We waited. We got on the next plane in Chicago to come back to Greensboro. And I said, Lord, please give me a chance. So I sat down, and we sat down next to a young student. She had a printed article in her hand. She was clearly reading it to study. And it said this. It said, St. Thomas Aquinas and the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And I want you to know that was the perfect opportunity because I was a philosophy student in college. 
And not a lot of people would know that. I'm not bragging. It's just they taught me who Thomas Aquinas was and what in the world the cosmological argument for the existence of God is. It's the argument that says everything has to have a cause. You know, when you're born, your parents are your cause. And you go back far enough, there originally had to be a cause to all of this that exists. What was that cause? Well, evolutionists say it was the Big Bang. Well, what banged the Big Bang? There had to be a cause for it. If that's true, I don't believe it's true, but even if it's true, there had to be a cause. And God is the cause of it all. And that's what that argument says. It's a little more detailed and complex than that. But I understood it. And so I turned to her and we began to talk. And I shared, oh, I was a philosophy major, reading Thomas Aquinas, huh? Yeah. And we talked about it. And I had the chance to share the gospel with that student on that airplane. And I was so thankful. She didn't pray. She didn't get saved. But two people overheard, and they heard us, and they started talking to us. And they didn't pray. They didn't get saved. But the seed was planted. And why did that happen? Because I prayed, Lord, give me that chance. Now, I could have told you other stories, but that's just the one that popped out in my mind when I thought about this. I don't want to brag. I'm not a great evangelist. I wish I was a much more evangelistic preacher. I wish that I would tell 10, 20 people a day about Jesus. I don't. But I want to. And I want you to pray that the Lord will send Kevin into the harvest this week. And pray that God will send people into the harvest for whoever you love that needs Jesus. Begin to pray every day like their life depends on it because it does. And let's follow the command to not just go from Matthew 28, but to pray for people to go. Like Matthew chapter 9 says. We have the same cause that he's got, the gospel. To seek and to save those who are lost. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We'll have compassion for those people. And now it's time to follow his command. You've been listening to Sermons at High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. Thanks for joining us. If you heard something that inspired you, challenged you, or encouraged you, please let me know. You can reach me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. We're also on Facebook at High Peak Church. Thanks for listening.